Good job. Take your Bibles and go to num- uh, not Numbers, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We, we could look at the passage in, in Numbers 7, but uh, it, it's one of those that you probably nodded off on uh, when you read through it, okay? So Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 tonight. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to cover verse 14 down to verse 18 tonight. Um, When we look at this, we're going to spend a little bit of time going through uh, what it means, kind of read through it, and then we'll we'll talk about um, the subject matter that he's still covering, kind of finishes it up in this latter part uh, of the chapter. And it's going to go, go kind of hand in hand with what we looked at on Sunday morning in the Sunday morning message. It kind of fits with Christmas in a way of the idea that we know in the Scriptures that Christ uh, came and was born uh, as, a, as a man. So here we are, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that, it, that had the power of death that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. So verse 14 through 18, the end of chapter 2, let's pray and we'll dig in a little bit deeper. Father, we thank you for the time tonight. Thank you for uh, the accomplishment of the, of the kids at Heritage Seekers and, and the things that they've learned. And Father, may you continue to use uh, that, um, that class and program to stir their, their minds, their hearts, so that they would learn, God, that in life they, there's hands-on things that we can do to serve you and be a blessing to others. And so, Father, I thank you for the time the teachers have put in with that and, and then the students themselves as well. And, but now we come to the Scriptures this evening. We ask God that you'd open our eyes and ears and uh, help us out to understand this passage and that we might get a, just a closer look at, at your Son, Jesus Christ, and, and uh, what took place and, and the reason why uh, that he came. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, notice in verse 14, it mentions there this uh, flesh and blood uh, it's referring to Christ. Uh, obviously, chapter 1, chapter 2 is saying that Jesus Christ came, and in chapter 1, he said he was, he was uh, made better than the angels. In chapter 2, he said he was uh, made lower than the angels. It's not a contradiction. It's in the subject matter in which he's dealing with. In chapter 2, he's focus, focusing upon the sacrifice and the, what we say, the, the crucifixion of Christ and this payment for sin. And in that respect, uh, it, it was is telling us that he is made a little lower than the angels. Uh, he came in, in the form of man. He didn't sin, obviously. He was perfect. But he lived a life to show that he was the perfect sacrifice. And that's what the author of Hebrews is, is showing us in chapter 2. Uh, when he gets to verse 14, he said that we as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. Now, Christ's blood is what we looked at last time that we were in Hebrews chapter 2. Christ's blood was not man's blood. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, in verse 28, uh, it, there it speaks about God's blood. 
And so we know that this blood that he had in his veins, because he was crucified on the cross and he shed his blood. But it wasn't our blood, because if it was mankind's blood, it had sin in it. And he, he wasn't a sinner. So that we know that it wasn't that. It's interesting, because when you get into 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, and Luke chapter 24, it describes the resurrected body. And when it describes the resurrected body, it doesn't use the term flesh and blood. It uses the term flesh and bones. So Christ had blood when he was here. There's no blood there. He has a body, but that body, and this is where you can, you can figure out how far you want to go with this and try to figure it out, but uh, your resurrected body, your heavenly body, doesn't have blood in it. it uh, it's going to have flesh and bones. And even the flesh and bones are not the same that you and I've got right now. It looks the same, but in Luke chapter 24, his, his image, his body, could pass through a wall without a door. And then when he got inside the room and passed through the wall, he ate fish and honeycomb. Now, if you get all that figured out, let me know. That's a resurrected body. Which then at the battle of Armageddon, when we follow Christ and the armies, remember that, the armies which follow him? Like, I dare you to shoot me. Like, you hurt me? It's a resurrected body. You, you, there's nothing that could harm us. So when he gives you a promise and says that in heaven there's neither pain, nor death, nor sorrow, uh, there's all of that concept, a resurrected body, it, it's not going to bother you at all. There's no problems. There's no doctors. There's, there's no hospitals. There's no funeral homes. And if you stub your toe, well, it's not going to hurt. And if you cut your finger, it doesn't bleed. <laughs> Again, I don't have all that figured out, but, but that's, that's the resurrected body. This is a heavenly body. But, but he says here that when he came, he had flesh and blood. But his blood wasn't man's blood. It was God's blood, but he had to shed this blood to pay for sins. And, and we're jumping ahead. But let's look at verse 14. He says, he also likewise took part of the same, meaning this fleshly body that you and I are in. Uh, Christ partook of the same same flesh, that through death he might destroy. So he had to die. See that? So Jesus had to die. Which means that he was, when he was born, he knew he was going to die. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's in, in agonizing over this going to the cross, and, and some of you have heard like I have, some preachers say, well, he was just praying that God wouldn't let him die. No, he had to die. He knew when he left eternity and came in time that he was to die. The problem that he saw was much greater. It was the fact that sin would be put upon him. He had never sinned. You understand what sin does between you and God. It separates your fellowship with God. When you wrong God by your sins, the fellowship is broken. And here we've got God the Father and God the Son, and their fellowship has never been broken, ever. In all of eternity, except that one moment for three days when sin was placed upon him. And that's why he cried on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So, verse 14, that says he had to die in order to do what? Uh, well, he's going to tell, through death he might destroy. Well, what's he going to destroy? Being him that had the power of death. So, he, his Christ's death destroys the, the, the him that had the power of death. Well, who, it is, who is it that has power to 
to kill somebody. Notice what he says in verse 14. That is, and who is it? Who is it? The devil. Remember in the book of Exodus in chapter 12, God said, uh, you're going to have a Passover. You're going to take a lamb. You're going to sacrifice a lamb, put his blood upon the uh, doorpost and lintel of the house. If you don't, the firstborn is going to die, and an angel would pass over. And if you didn't have the blood over the home, the firstborn dies. Was the angel a good angel or a bad angel? It was bad. You know who that angel was? It was Satan. But in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, God uh, was the one that said, to, uh, you can go after Job. Remember Job, he, he did nothing wrong. He said, but you can go after Job, but touch not his life. So even though Satan has this power to, to kill, he cannot do it unless God gives him permission. He can't do it. So for a Christian, if they die then obviously there is a part that Satan says, got him. Right? He's the death angel. He's the one that has power. But, right, but, but Christ said there that he's di- he dies so that through the death of Christ, he might destroy him that had the power of death. But did, when Christ died on the cross, did it eliminate, the, eliminate Satan? Like he just vanished all of a sudden? Or is he still around? Obviously, he's still around because uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 writes the church after the resurrection and says that you're in a spiritual battle against who? Against the devil. And he says, now put on your armor and stand against the wiles of the, the devil. Now, we're not saying that this passage is incorrect. It is accurate. It is a death. You ever heard somebody say that's a death blow? In other words, he hasn't been eliminated yet, but the power in which Satan had was now decreased. I'm jumping ahead a little bit because watch what in verse 15. And deliver them who through, de- through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Here's what, here's what makes you and I as Christians unique. I'm not afraid to die. I'm not afraid of death. Now we jokingly say the process to get there doesn't look fun. For some, it's cancer. Some, it's a heart attack. Some, it is laying in a hospital bed and, uh, and, and, and all sorts. Some just go to sleep and, and never wake up. Now, now that, if you could choose, right? Just lay down and go to sleep and didn't know what happened, right? There's all sorts of, of paths and, and ways of, that death occurs. And though that is not what looks appealing, but absent from the body, present with the Lord. Some of you look at me kind of strange, <laughs> Uh, take your Bibles and look with me at 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. All right, 1 John chapter 4, and, and look down at verse 8, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is what? God is love. Our world likes to talk about that. They say, oh, well, God is love. But did you know that in 1 John, before God ever told you that God is love, look back at chapter 1, look at chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. So before an individual can know that God is love, he first has to know in verse 5, right towards the end of the verse, God is what? Light. Before God will ever show you his love, he shows you his light. That's what the world is not interested in. Light exposes darkness. Light exposes uh, Mars and sins. It, it exposes problems. 
And they, all they want to think about is in the world is that God is love. And don't you judge me because he loves me. Well, yes, he showed you his love. He demonstrated his love for God so loved the world that he what? That he gave his only begotten son. But you understand tonight that you are, you are unlovable. God looked at the world and said, I really, I really can't love you. But I'm going to demonstrate to you that I have a love. So love is deciding to, to pour affection into someone or an object that really doesn't deserve it because they're unlovable. But God says, I'm going to love you in spite of who you are. And God gave his son for the world. For them to experience God's love, they first have to recognize that God is light. That's what you did. You recognized that you were a sinner, and then Christ died for you. And then you trusted Christ's payment for you, and then you experienced the love of God. And that's what 1 John is dealing with. Go back to chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. So he says, God is love. Look down at verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect. It's made complete. It's made whole that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is, because God is love, so are we in this world. There is no fear in what? In love. Watch, He says, but perfect love casteth out what? Fear. When you got saved, Paul said in Colossians, he said, God came in you. You have God. And God is what? God is love. So now that I got this perfect love, it cast out, it drove out all fear in which I had. And that's why as a Christian, I'm not afraid to die. That's what concerned me, probably one of the biggest concerns uh, in 2020 with all the COVID. Why were the churches upset? Why were they afraid? Why did, they, why did we get engulfed in this whole society that went, oh no, put a mask on. No, don't just put one on. Put five on and then put a face shield and wear Tyvek suits and put rubber gloves. You saw them in Walmart. And the problem was, it wasn't just lost people. It was the saved. And some of those, some of those that profess salvation. Now, I'm, I'm not questioning. It. Salvation is simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And your whole life is turned around instantaneously, cleaned up on the outside, and you wear nice fancy clothes. Is that what he said? So sometimes things on the outward didn't change, but something can change on the inside. You believed on Christ, and you were changed on the inside. And some of those folks that profess salvation, I'm not going to question them, but leave it at that. And some of them are still not in church today because they're afraid they're going to get sick. Why? Didn't you get saved because you knew you were going to die? <laughs> you do understand that, right? The wages of sin is what? So why did we get engulfed in it? There, there should be no fear of death for the Christian because we have the perfect love of Christ within us. So John says, when you got born again and God came in, that fear or oppression to die. Now listen, I was eight years old when I got saved. I, I can't tell you some horrific story like I was in a manic depressant and I was afraid I was going to die and, and had grievous sins I had to dump. I, I just was a kid that realized I needed Jesus and that I had sinned. So I didn't deal with a fear of death. 
Some of you, though, you, you, you might have been later on when you got saved, uh, and be- right before you got saved, before you trusted Christ, you, you knew if, if you died, you were not right with God. You knew something was going to happen to you, and uh, you didn't want to die. And you, you would do everything you could to make sure you didn't die. You're, and those, and those, that concept and that fear, we're going to describe it as an oppression of death. I want you to go back with me to Hebrews chapter 2. There's a reason I'm showing this, that the love of God came inside of us at salvation. It drives away a fear that I'm not afraid to die, and you're not afraid to die if you're saved. Hebrews chapter 2, look with me again at verse 15. He says, now, talking about Christ's deliverance, and deliver them who through fear of what? Of death. He said, so Christ brought this redemption, this salvation. He, he pays for it on the cross and when he does that, he, de- he delivers or destroys Satan's power in verse 14. But he also, in verse 15, delivers them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime, their whole life. They were subject to bondage. What bondage? Were they enslaved with chains and uh, into a wall in a dungeon? No. They were walking around this world, and they had, uh, they had uh, families, their husbands and wives, and they have kids, and they had jobs, and they ate, drank, and be merry. But on the inside, guess what they're afraid of? They're afraid of dying. Now, you've got to take this passage and go further than a lost individual. You understand tonight that there were individuals within the Old Testament that followed God. We call them saints. I don't mean that they were canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. We just mean they followed God. We would say they were believers, but wait a minute. They weren't believers like you and I. Jesus hadn't come yet. He hadn't died. Their, their form of believing was keeping commandments in most of this generalized sense of the term in the Old Testament, keeping the law of God, making physical sacrifices of animals, of uh, lambs and goats and bulls and, and all of these things. And, and, and they, they, they couldn't even get into where God was at inside the, 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 the mercy seat room. They couldn't get there. Only the priest one time a year. And even though they did all of this, Guess what they were still in bondage with? Death. What's going to happen to me when I die? You say, Brother Jeremy, but I thought they were, they were in the term of they were believers in God. They were, but here's the catch. It wasn't until Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit of God indwells a believer. After that, when you trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit of God is put inside of you instantaneously. It is from that we say that we have eternal security. That now that I have God in me, for those of you that have read your Bibles, you know that you get in there in the Old Testament and you see see King Saul, and King Saul blew it. I mean, he messed up royally, no pun intended. And when he blew it, the Holy Spirit of God departed, the Bible says the Spirit of God departed and never came back. You know tonight that can never happen to you? The the Spirit of God cannot depart from you and and never come back. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 4, he gave you the Spirit of God until the day of redemption, until God takes you out of this, this earth and takes you to heaven. At that point, you will be separated from the Spirit of God and you. It won't matter after that because you're in heaven. Then you've, then you've, got, a, you've got another character. You've got Samson. Do you remember his story? The long-haired guy. Yeah. And uh, probably skinny. Now, you see, you always thought in those cartoons that he was, you know, like, worked out. No, they looked at him and go, where does he get the strength from? He's a scrawny little thing. And he can just, like, you know, tear gates down and kill all sorts of Philistines. And uh, the Bible says that the, the Spirit of God came upon him. He had great power. Then the Spirit of God departed from him. 
Then the Spirit of God came back to him. Not you. He came in and never departs. And then David says in Psalm 51, he said, Father, Lord, he said, take not thine Holy Spirit from me. You know what he's afraid of? He's afraid that God could take the Holy Spirit from him. A, a Christian is not under that bondage. So all those guys in the Old Testament, even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they, they knew who God was and they served God, there was still something that thought, I hope I'm right with God when I die. I'm afraid to die. What's going to happen to me when I die? And so when Christ came, according to verse 15, uh, their whole lifetime, that that bondage was removed from them. Notice in verse 16, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels. Look back at chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1 and verse 7. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels what? Spirits. So angels are what? Spirits. So if Christ had come down into this realm of, of time and decided, I, I don't want to be a man, I don't want to be a human being, I'm just going to be an angel, then he would have been a spirit. But that's not what he was. He took upon himself, according to Philippians chapter 2, uh, the form of a servant, and that meaning that in that passage he took upon himself human flesh. He became a man. I think it's kind of interesting that fitting that, that this very passage we get to is right around Christmas. And um, that's exactly what we, we look at this baby in a manger, and that's God. That's weird when you think about it. So somebody, somebody had to change a diaper on God. Somebody had to burp him. All the things that go along with all that stuff, right? Some mama worried that, is he going to choke when he's a toddler? I've often wondered, like, no wonder, you know, some of his brothers and sisters didn't, didn't like him as they got older. Can you imagine playing hide and seek with Jesus? He always finds me. Like, I mean, I can never hide. <laughs> and all of, you know, I, I'm, all those things go along with, with childhood and kids. And he was perfect. And, and then Joseph would say, okay, let me teach you how to make some furniture today. And he walks back in and he goes, I don't get it. Mary, I mean, I, I show him how to do it, and he, he cuts it right and perfectly every time. I've been working 30 years my whole life trying to get this chair. To, and he just puts it together like just no big deal. I don't know what it was like that those are kind of silent years. And you kind of have to look in, read, and think about it, but... All of that action and all the life, he partook in all of that without sin. Without sin. Look at Isaiah chapter 9 with me, Isaiah chapter 9. Are you getting warm in here tonight? A little warm? Man, that's Brother Dale turned off. because I know you're getting warm because when I'm, not just because temperature I'm getting warm. When I see your eyeballs kind of going, it's too warm for you. You're getting too comfortable. And so the next thing I do is I'm going to have to make you all stand up, and you won't be able to sit down for the next hour. Yeah, okay. Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9. We're not going to be long tonight, Isaiah 9. Somebody's going to, this, this Christmas, going to get a Christmas card or uh, see it posted on some social media, and somebody's going to use this, this, uh, this verse. Watch Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. There's about 2,000, oh, well, there's more than that. There's... Um, yeah, there's over 2,000 years 
crammed in one verse, in verse 6. Watch this. For unto us a child is born. That's Christmas, right? What we call Christmas? This is the first advent, the scene of Christ. Comma, unto us a son is given. See that? You see that comma right there behind, behind the word born? Behind the word born and the word unto, there's 33 years. That's, that's the time frame between the word born and unto, 33 years. Because for God so loved the world that he what? God didn't give his son in a manger. He gave his son on the cross. I'm telling you, there's a lot of time crammed in this verse. Watch this, verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. It's like bearing the burden, uh, the weight of governing people. He hasn't governed anybody. So behind uh, the, the, the word given and the word and is at least 2,000 years. Because it hasn't happened yet. You got at least, if the rapture happened today, you got seven more years of tribulation. Then you got the millennial reign of Christ. That's when he bears the burden of ruling and reigning over the whole earth. He's king of kings and lord of lords. Look what it says. And, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Uh, last I checked, they don't call him wonderful out there. Now, to you and I, he's wonderful. But to the world, he's not wonderful. Counselor. Oh, so they ask his advice? I, I, don't, think that, I don't think the House or the Senate in Washington, D.C. today said, I wonder what God would like for us to do. <laughs> they didn't ask his advice. You might find a few Christians that did, but not the entirety. The mighty God? Well, they don't call him that either. The everlasting Father? Oh, you, you see what he just did? He called the Son and the child, Jesus, called him the Father. They're equal, but yet they're different. Let me ask you, can you look at verse 6 right there and find the word Trinity? So if you decided to do a study on the word Trinity or the subject, and you typed in Trinity or even typed in Godhead, it wouldn't pull that verse up. Only way you'd find that one is reading it. Look at verse 6, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, verse 7, and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. But you, what you have in verse 6 and 7 is the foretelling, the prophecy of a coming Messiah, of a Savior that is equal with God, yet he is God, and he's called the Counselor, he is called the Mighty God, he is called the Everlasting Father, he is called the Prince of Peace, but yet he is a child, and yet he is the Son to be given. And Isaiah prophesied and said, he's coming. Look back at chapter 7 of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, look what he says in verse 14. Isaiah chapter 7, uh, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. We know he's dealing with Israel. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. See that? 
Take your Bibles and look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. So that was the prophecy of Jesus and the virgin birth. And so Matthew chapter 1, we're not going to read all the chapter in chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to verse 25. Uh, we've looked at this already in the Christmas uh, season when we talked about Joseph and his life just a few weeks ago. But look with me down in verse, um, oh, verse 23. In verse 23 is a quotation of the prophet Isaiah in verse 23, behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel. Which being interpreted is God with us. Now that verse right there will mess up a Jehovah Witness every time. Every time. Because they'll knock on your door, they'll come up and they'll say, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm part of the kingdom, I'm 144,000, and I'm part of Jehovah, you know, and you've got to do this, this, and this to go to paradise. And, and uh, you ask him, you say, well, who is Jesus? Oh, he was just a good prophet. You could reach over and grab a hold of their, their Bible, New World Translation, turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 23 right there, and in their, in their translation, it's going to say that Jesus was called Emmanuel, being interpreted Jehovah is with us. Whoops. So their very book says that Jesus was God. You say, will it change him? No. They'll look at you and say, well, I don't believe that. <laughs> so all you prove is that they don't believe the authority of the Word of God. They only want to follow what they think is right. So Isaiah prophesied of a coming child and a son born of a virgin, born as a man, and it happens in Matthew chapter 1. It is fulfilled. Look with me at John, the gospel of John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Uh, Matthew presents him as king. And uh, when the, in, the, in the gospel of Matthew, as he presents Jesus Christ as the king, he gives his lineage. And uh, you can trace him all the way back to... Uh, uh, to David in, in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 1. In the gospel of Mark, there is no lineage. There is no lineage given. Uh, it, shows you no, it, is, it doesn't even tell you where he came. All of a sudden, Jesus just shows up. Now, we know that's not the, that's not the case. It's that when, when Mark writes, Mark is showing you that Jesus Christ came to this earth and he was a servant. If you lived in a culture and society and you were going to buy a slave... Who cares who his mom and daddy was? Are you going to go get like a DNA testing for the slave? It doesn't matter. All you're interested in is can that guy do the job in which I, I want him to do? And that's why when Mark presents him as a servant, it doesn't matter where he came from. He came to serve mankind. And Mark shows him being the servant. The Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is your second gospel that gives you a lineage, and that lineage traces him all the way back to Adam. He says he's connected to Adam, the son of, the son of, of Adam, and well, that, that passage, or the Gospel of Luke, is showing his humanity, that he's a man, and he traces him to Adam. When you get to the Gospel of John in chapter 1, you could say there is a lineage, but really it's not the traditional sense of a lineage. Look at chapter 1 in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is where the New World Translation, the Jehovah Witnesses go, oh no, this is a really bad verse, so we've got to do something. So here's what they do. They add one letter. Here's what theirs would say. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. 
He was not a God. You didn't have God the Father and then God the Son, and these two are separate. No, they're the same. And that's exactly what John says. John says, He is God, and there is no beginning. He is the beginning. He's God. Look at verse 2. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Skip down to the passage and look down at verse 14. And the Word was made, what? Was made flesh. It was made flesh. Here's a truth tonight that we'll just point out from Hebrews, and we'll take you back there in a minute. The Word, or God, was made to be flesh, and He was made to dwell among men. Look what He says in verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He slept on the same bed as men did. He did all the same things that mankind does. I'm not talking sinful. I'm just, he, the Bible says in the, the Gospel of Matthew, that it says he was a hungered. His physical flesh, at some point his stomach growled and said, man, I'd really like a burger. I think that's what it was. I think it's in a Greek somewhere. He, he wanted a hamburger or pizza. Maybe it was pizza, but he got hungry. You wouldn't think of God. Why would God get hungry? But that's the humanity side. It says, He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So God prepared for him a dwelling place. That's exactly what He said in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, that He prepared for him a body, physical body. And to do that, the truth that shows itself is that Mary was the human vessel that God would use inside her womb for the, her being the vessel to produce the place for him to dwell. Guys, we'll never experience it no matter what this world says or what you could think you could identify as. I will never have the, the effect of being able to feel another human being with inside of me but a mama can. I don't know what it's like. But when Mary felt a kick, that was God in a dwelling of a body. That's weird to think about, isn't it? And God existed long before Mary was even thought of. You know, she was created. But God existed eternally. She was just the means to bring forth a body for him to dwell in. And then God said, um, I, didn't, I didn't have him come as an angel. Because an angel couldn't take care of your main problem. You know what your main problem is? Three-letter word, sin. And the angel, an angel cannot solve that for you never has been able to and never will be able to solve it for you. Take your Bibles and look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. You say, Brother Jeremy, why, why do we need to know all this? You realize that, that one of the biggest attacks upon Christianity is this idea that, well, you know, come on, they, uh, we, we, we teach in our society uh, with kids that there's all these figments of their imagination and they come at different times of the year and dressed in different stuff. And when they hit a certain age, we say, 
It was all fake. It was all just a big lie. Correct? Follow me? Whether you like it or not, that's what it is. And then you're one day going to look at them and say, and the God of heaven, you can't see him, you can't touch him, you just got to believe in him by faith because you can't see him. But you got to trust me, he's real. And we've lied to him for how many years? From tooth under a pillow to eggs in the springtime and on down the list. And now we've got a society that makes all sorts of sci-fi stuff within the realms of movies. And it's all fake. But you're supposed to believe in God. So there's an attack upon your Christianity. These are the foundational issues or subjects or doctrines. And listen, I know tomorrow that you going to work or going to school or whatever problem you're dealing with, the subject of the incarnation doesn't solve all that for you. But it will take care of a sin problem. Romans chapter 1, Paul says there in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now, he gives his parentheses, and watch what he does in verse 2, which he had promised. Well, you saw it, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9. He promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. John said he was, uh, he was made, he was, the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Uh, Paul here says he was made like you and I. Look at verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power. So he goes around doing all these great miracles. And it declares that he is the Son of God. But he's not just the Son of God. He is God manifest in the flesh. And dwelt among men. According to the spirit of holiness. By the resurrection from the dead. So the fourth idea that you get from Hebrews is that Christ existed long before the incarnation. If I say something is carnal, that means it's fleshly. A carnival, it's fleshly. The incarnation, he came in, that's what it means, he came in flesh. So I know it's a big word that we don't tend to use, but that's what it means, that that he was made in flesh just like you and I. Now, when he was made in flesh, here now there is this God of the universe that is now in some form or fashion bound just like you and I to this. He is subject to this. There are examples of him defying the nature of, of the laws of gravity, etc. But, but in general, I mean, he didn't just float around. He walked on the earth. And obviously his power that he exemplified of raising the dead and healing the sick, etc., defied and produced the miracles, showing that he was, and it was God manifest in the flesh. But he's still limited. He's still limited with this. And in John chapter 1, it said he dwelt among us. He was the Word. In Genesis chapter 1, in verse 1, in the beginning was what? In the beginning was God. He created all things. That was what he says in Colossians 1, John chapter 1. He said, I made all that stuff. Could you imagine the conversations then that he's standing there 
in a human body, dressed in clothes, just as the regular common man around him. And the Pharisees are questioning, by what authority do thou do these things? Who do you think you are? And in his mind, he's thinking, sucker, <laughs> I made you. <laughs> I made the dirt that formed a man and breathed into it the breath of life. You Pharisee, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for me. But he didn't say that, did he? He didn't say it. You realize when, when Paul says in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself? You know humility is sometimes? Practically speaking for you, bite your tongue. And keep your mouth shut. You know what your nature is? Yeah, but I want to defend myself. Zip it. Yeah, but, the, but they're, they're wrong and I'm right. It's pretty much what Christ was. He was right and they were wrong. And he closed his mouth as a lamb for the slaughter. That's humility. That's what submission is. This is why I say, guys, you never, God never told you to look at your wife and say, you better submit to me. God never told you to say that. You can't find one verse to show me that God told you to tell her. God spoke to her and told her that. And she knows. You say, well, it ought to be easy. If it was easy, it wouldn't be submission. That's why you battle against God. We all have to submit to someone. How did you get on this subject? <laughs> because he submitted himself to this world. Why? Why did he do that? Why, why would God submit himself? So that one time they asked him, they said, who are you? And in John chapter, uh, chapter 7 and chapter 8, he said, the I am. Now, pause. Do you know who the I am is? In the book of Exodus, Moses says, now, the Jews are going to ask me who sent me. Well, what I tell them? He said, you just tell them that the I am, I am sent you. Meaning that everything that God is is encompassed in a statement of I am. He's all things. So to the Jew, when Jesus says, I am, they said, that's blasphemy. But it wasn't. He was God dwelling among men. I don't want you to get caught up in, in elves and Santa Claus and garland and Christmas trees and presents and forget that the idea of Christmas is that God was manifest in the flesh and dwelt among men. And they didn't understand it. And they still don't. They still don't get it. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. So he says, I'll, I'll give my son, he'll dwell among men, take on flesh, so that he will destroy Satan. Or the power of death, could we say? That's what he said there in verse 14, the power of death. He destroyed him. But wait, wait a minute, the devil still exists. He still kills people. People still die. Then what did he mean is that when you and I become believers, this bondage of death or fear of death is no longer there. 
And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? So you ever heard somebody say, you can't keep a good man down? You can't keep us down. The best man to ever live, you couldn't keep him down. He rose from the dead. And then he dwells among men. And he, now he dwells not just among men in a physical body. He dwells in us. In verse 15, he says, they were bondage, but you and I are not. In verse 16, he said, he did not take on the, the nature of an angel of a spirit, but he took upon your nature like the seed of Abraham. Verse 17, wherefore, it means because of all of this, in all things, it behooved him. It, um, it pleaded with him. It, it was a, a major request, him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God. Because what he lived, he can represent you before God, and have it with faithfulness and mercy. Mercy is acknowledging what you and I deal with in this life. We are the most amazing creative creature that God ever made. Yet we are so strong, but oh so weak. You guys will, will get a paper cut and, and your wives will think you're dying. And that splinter is killing you. And yet men can go to war and have limbs blown off. And survive amazing stories or lay on a hospital bed with, with chemicals that burn up the insides of their body to kill a cancer. And they push through with some determination that they're going to survive. And they do it. In some cases, they do. And they live for years and, and the, 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 the pain and the torment that they, they go through. And yet the smallest thing can, can, can a smallest, the smallest form of bacteria uh, or a virus that you cannot even see with the human eye can bring you to your knees. In the bathroom. Can it not? No matter your stature or your money that you've got in the bank account. And yet, and yet it was that body in which he took upon himself. Why? To destroy some things. So he also knows what you're going through. In verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted. Being tempted. He, the temptation in the wilderness. He is able to secure. To secure is to draw an individual to himself. But it's more than just to draw. It is, a, it is a securing or drawing to help somebody, but also to rescue them with provisions. Don't ever change that word secure. Because if you just say draw, it doesn't mean the same. I understand that secure is this old English word. We don't talk like that. Oh, but the depth of the meaning is that he draws you to himself. And as he pulls you to himself, he has the provisions to take care of you in your time of need. It is not that he just goes, get over here by me. He pulls you up and he's merciful and he is faithful to you and he helps you. Christianity today has a concept that Jesus and God help us. And that's why we need to get saved. No, you need to get saved because you're headed to hell. And you've got a sin that's, that's weighing against you. But with this salvation, he's going to use a term in verse 2, verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 17, latter part of the verse, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. I wish I had the time, and I'm not going to spend the time going through it tonight. But reconcile is to take a party that, that is offended. I mean, Phoebe offends me. She's got bad breath. No like to be around her. But, but then Ellie walks in and goes, here, let me give you a breath mint. 
and now we're reconciled. Meaning that there was something that was parting the two of us. We're opposed. God's holy, is he not? He said, be holy as I am holy. But the holiness of God does not reconcile man to himself. That is the part that he says, you can't get near me because I am holy and you're a sinner. He says, I I wish that my holiness could draw you to myself, but it doesn't. I, I know you want to fix everything and you want to be better, but you fixing it doesn't get you to me. So therefore, my son had to be made in likeness of a man and and be able to be holy, but yet take upon himself the same temptations without failing that would grab a hold of this individual and bring us to God. And God says, this is a big, long word (laughs) here in the passage in in verse uh, 17. He said, but what it is, is that God reconciles the sinner. It, It brings two parties together. And now me and Phoebe can be friends. But wait a minute. It's not just me bringing her. Come here. Come here. You get here. I won't embarrass you tonight. All across live stream, they're going to see you. So we just wave to them. Right? Okay. So we got, we got Phoebe here. And, and you stay right there. So we were, we were separated because of sin. I'm a representation of God. And I'm holy. And she is unholy. But my holiness cannot bring her to me. So therefore, I need something that will reconcile the two of us together. Now, reconciliation is what happens with salvation, but it's not what brought us to him, to God. You see, what we've got to have is we have to have something that is a propitiation. That's another big word. One of the big words that the average Christian has never even heard of, and you got educated with it tonight. You find it in 1 John chapter 2. I think it's in 1 John chapter, uh, chapter 5. God says that his son is the propitiation. What propitiation? It's, it's a legal term that means that there was a payment that satisfied the offended party. You see, you're the one that offended me with your bad breath. You did. I smelled it when you walked in tonight. And so I, I've got these right here for you. Open your hand. You don't have to put them in your mouth. I'm holy. I mean, you'd think that I would have... Nieces. Oh, okay. So I've given her something, and let's say that she, she takes this, this, and it's going to take care of her bad breath problem, right? Because she never brushes her teeth. Do you? You're, don't start giggling. No, don't start doing She's, Now we have the propitiation. It appeases. Okay, now I can be around her, right? Now, God didn't, didn't give breath mints. He gave his son as the payment. And the Bible says he was the propitiation for her sins. God is the offended party. He's the one wronged. She wronged me. Jesus is the propitiation. And because the propitiation, now we can be reconciled. Stop. Now, now people say, well, you just ought to forgive. Did God forgive? But what had to be made? A sacrifice had to be made. Don't look to me and say, you've got to forgive. Well, the offended party, the offended has to have the sacrifice. Now, God says, here's my son. He can be your sacrifice. But he, he is, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man or woman or child comes to God but through who? Through Christ. 
I know those are some big terms tonight. They're legal terms in, in the sense of lawful. But if God did not offer his son, then you would be just like Phoebe in this illustration, and there will be no way to reconcile with God. And so Christ is the propitiation. He is the payment. He reaches down, and he gra- you dropped that thing. He grabs, he grabs the hand of the sinner, and he grabs the hand of God, and he comes together with you. And he says, you're okay now. He secured them. He brought them together. He didn't draw them, and that was it. He drew them together and said, now, now, now I'll take that which was, was ashes and turn it to beauty. I'll take that which was hurt and broken, and I'll heal it. And you've got a high priest that now intercedes on your behalf, and he says he is faithful, and he is merciful. He understands what she's going through. She, he, he understands when he says, when she says, I feel apart from God. He says, I've been there. But you're not. I got you. And that's what God did for you. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. I'll let you go sit down now. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying is that God brought you together. And that is because of the incarnation of Christ. He dwelt among men and brought them together. Again, it's fitting. When you look at that nativity scene where it's a little tykes and a little plastic people, and there's a baby Jesus in plastic. Or you're on the way home tonight and you see the plastic figurines outside or a white silhouette with a light shining on it. May we never take that for granted that God dwelt among men and went to the cross at Calvary to grab your hand and God and bring you together. In Isaiah chapter 53, the Bible says, and it pleased the Lord, it pleased God that his soul was made an offering for your sin. You see, a propitiation has to be pleasing to the party. I'll close with this. If she said, no, I don't want the mints, I really like caramelized onions, and I'm going to suck on those. If she said, no, I like garlic tablets, and, and I'm going to suck on that. I said, no, that's repulsive. See that? That's like saying, I don't need Jesus, I'll do it on my own. I've got my religion, you've got yours. And God says, I'm not pleased with that, and therefore we cannot be reconciled. You have to have Jesus, because that was the pleasing sacrifice. If I want to make it practical, you have a bad day tomorrow, I guess, I don't know. you got a rough day coming ahead of you. I guess you just say, God, you know what I'm going through. And you're faithful and you're merciful. Secure me to you. (laughs) Draw me and help me out. And you've got a faithful and merciful Savior. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time tonight to study Hebrews chapter 2. In the doctrinal context, the ideas of of the incarnation, the the, the son that, was, that came to dwell among men. Again, very fitting for Christmas and to be reminded of it. May we not take it for granted. May we be stirred within our hearts tonight and the, the truths of your word, that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and made the payment that draws to you. And God, we thank you for it. And thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. This is Pastor Jeremy Wilson. We sure appreciate you listening. 
uh, to this service today. We hope that it was a help to you and uh, your endeavors to study and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. If we can be a help, be sure to check us out online at hbcpicune.com.